So I had a chance to go to Berlin for the first time recently. Uh-huh. And I was really excited to see some of the architectural sites, see some some nice socialist architecture, uh-huh. planning, yeah. and urbanism. Yeah. I don't know that I if I've ever actually been to a formerly formerly socialist socialist country before. Uh-huh. This might have been my first time actually seeing right the stuff in person. Um, I did some lots of walking around East Berlin. I saw the Stalin Allee, Karl Marx Allee. Of course, I saw some East, like further East Berlin housing, mass housing, prefab stuff. Late fifties, sixties. Yes, sixties. I think uh, there's some other prefab stuff around. I also saw some of the classic, you know, like Schinkel's uh, museum right, and right, right, yeah, a couple yeah. of other stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, of course. I went to the DDR museum, mm. the East German East Germany museum, mm. and I was. What did you learn? Well, I, I was fairly naive <laughs> going in there because I thought it would be like when you watch a, a film about this. There's there's usually some sort of balanced depiction, which mixes positive and negative. With the overall feeling like, well, it's good that it's over, but it was interesting and when it happened. Right. I wasn't prepared for the avalanche of anti-communist propaganda that was this museum. Mm-hmm. It's probably like a PragerU uh, ad, <laughs> basically, in physical form. <laughs> and at times it, it verged on, it was mostly standard stuff, but there were a few places that I thought were particularly absurd. Uh-huh. So I, I've got some uh, brief passages to read from the wall texts. Okay. In one area of the museum, there was a kind of mock-up of a kindergarten mm. uh, with like period stuff, uh, artifacts. The museum was like that, of, like have, have little like... Yeah, there was well, some... This is like the visual atmosphere of, of what life in socialism was like. Yeah, there was like a car, uh, an old car produced there that you could get in. Mm-hmm. There was a uh, bedrooms you could go in to see what they were like, the kindergarten. I'll tell you about the bedrooms in a second. So in this little mock-up, mocked-up kindergarten, the wall text said, a planned childhood. The kindergarten was not only a good source of childcare, it was the first state institution of education that a child would visit. Seizing this early opportunity to convince the next generation of the joys of socialism, the state ensured <laughs> that more than 90% of children were granted a place. So here... Bastards! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Like an actual universal provision is, is they forced ninety percent of the kids into a kind of state indoctrination camp. Yeah, it's kind of like when you give universal health care, most people experience that they like it and they want to continue it. No, they're being indoctrinated. <laughs> That's indoctrination. Yes, experiencing, it's experiencing something positive. That it's good. Yeah, I can. I'm imagining like a, the uh, the kindergarten having like blaring like. Um, Loudspeakers. Loudspeakers all over the place, like, socialism is good, but in Deutsch. Well, here's, here's the actual description. Socialism is good. The day was subject to rigid planning. Children were encouraged to do everything in the collective, playtime, meals, and even the afternoon nap left no room for individual initiative. By party <laughs> logic, a good socialist life in the community was more important than the development of individual abilities. <laughs> Now, I don't know if you remember child <laughs> kindergarten, but I don't remember like individually deciding when I had a nap or when I had a snack. I, I always thought that I have been indoctrinated to be a communist by my parents. Turns out I was indoctrinated to be a <laughs> communist by my kindergarten, which was a private capitalist enterprise. <laughs> yeah, this is just standard kindergarten stuff. 
So this is now we're going to move to the uh, adult section of the museum to mm-hmm. the to the bedroom. Where and the, I was where where the future kindergarten customers are, are, are produced. Yes, exactly. The 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 the, um, the mode of production. Yeah. Of kindergarten customers. Now coming into the museum, I was I was expecting something interesting in this in this uh, on this subject because it's kind of a well known fact that yeah. love lives were better in East Germany than West yeah. Germany. Does, does does the museum acknowledge that at least? Well, this is this is the text in in the in the bedroom section. Love, sex, and socialism. The East German Sounds bedroom good. was generally accepted as being part of the private sphere. Really? <laughs> they, they 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 didn't put uh, loudspeakers saying socialism is no no loudspeakers into, no in the bedroom. exactly. Perhaps with good reason, as the bedroom was busier than in the West. In comparison to their capitalist cousins, East Germans had sex earlier, married younger, had more children, and were more likely to have an affair or to divorce. Was this due to the greater levels of female employment? They married younger? Patriarchy. Yeah. Patriarchal communism forced them to get married earlier. Was this due to the social... Was this due to the greater levels of female employment, the positive effects of social solidarity, or just because there was generally less to do under socialism? They they just said uh, that they worked less hours in a, in a way that it makes it look bad. Yeah, exactly. That's what they did. Exactly. Or that there was like less... Um, less consumer know, activities. Less consumer activities. Yeah, yeah. Which is probably not true. Like, I I bet you that the movies was cheaper. Yeah, not to mention concert halls, opera, yes, yeah, that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. This is the end of the text. It seems remarkable that the social system impinged most strongly on the most private of activities. Perhaps the personal is pol- political after all. So here they're just they're just framing greater women's autonomy and material independence as some kind of evil impinging impinging force from the economy on the private life yeah it's not like it's just called improvement that's just called yeah impinging just means improvement yeah i mean it's the thing is assuming the uh, patriarchal relations as standard yeah and anything that empowers women is impinging on the natural state of private relations yeah it's the basic message of the museum which is like trying to change something for the better is part evil and part stupid. Right. Right. And bound to fail. What is and should be a subject of ridicule. Yeah, and it's and it's in this particular instance, it's very aggressively making an anti feminist statement. This is just a, a taste of the propaganda bonanza that was mm-hmm. the DDR museum. But I got you know, I got a nice uh, fridge magnet. True. So it's all worth it. Which was ironical (laughs) for them, but not for you. But not for me. (laughs) Hi, everyone. Welcome to Street Sweeper. (laughs) Yeah, back again. Another episode. Hi, I'm my Ricardo. Name is, my name is Will. <laughs> Today we wanted to talk about the um, 
series that the zine has had on deconstructivism. Yeah. And then we were looking at it <laughs> and we were like, this is kind of boring. It is, isn't it? We were, ha- we, ha- we had the whole like, okay, this is going to be one, uh, kind of an easy episode. Hopefully one part not too intellectual, just kind of. Yeah, it was, a, it was a Dazine dumpster dive episode. Basically. Yeah, exactly. But no, this is not funny. We saw some funny things in the comments. That's true. <laughs> I saw a funny headline on there that was Frank Gehry saying something like, this is just the Dazine headline. Like, mm-hmm. I'm fucking serious about good building. <laughs> <laughs> I, the, uh, like, take me seriously, I demand it. I demand respect. <laughs> I'm uh, a serious fucking badass and good architect, man. <laughs> Gary is, is the best of the lot. Probably. Like, architecturally? No. I mean, maybe. As a character? I don't even know. <laughs> I don't, it's, it's hard to even figure out how to answer that question. I There's mean, this he's, whole, like, he's made the most money, probably. Probably, that's true. And he's still alive. And he wasn't that. He's he's got he, that he didn't Rizal. start at the AA. Right. He starts in, in, in Moneyland. He's Canadian. Yeah, sort of. I thought he was Californian, Californian. from California. <laughs> yeah. yeah, mostly. He's Canadian from California. Yeah, for the purposes of winning Canadian architecture competitions in Toronto, oh, he's okay. Canadian. Okay, fine. It's fine. Canadian architecture competitions. Okay. Um, yeah, like the, the the thing I find the fun I think I found the funniest here is like every single one of them that they're interviewing saying, "I don't consider myself a deconstructivist architect. I yeah. don't like deconstructive." It's like all of these like regime, ultra established, ultra establishment, powerful white male architects, just going about. I'm special. Don't put me in a box. I'm a special little snowflake. Yeah. I mean, it, it really has that, that feel of like aged rock stars from some band who are all kind of like trying to push their solo careers <laughs> that no one ever listened to or I care mean, about, cares about. Yeah. I mean, their careers are all, have all, always been all of them solo careers. Yeah, but yeah. it's also there's but also a bit of true. like, I I resent being interviewed about this. Please interview me about whatever my latest thing is that I'm yeah. trying to sell right now. Yeah, there's yeah, also yeah. that vibe, and that's why Frank Gehry is the best of them because he's the most uh, aggressive in his. He's not playing the special snowflake thing. I think it's an overly facile ca- category. He doesn't really describe what we were trying to do. Frank Gehry was never trying to do anything except money. Yeah, I, I didn't actually read the interview with him. I got to be honest. Did they do an yeah. interview? Maybe they didn't even do an they interview. Did, no, they didn't I don't do think one. so. I didn't run into one. Eisenman is the most intellectually serious and therefore ridiculous Right, them, right. Who launches in in the interview with uh, Tom Ravensbourne um, into a denunciation of the term deconstructivism? Oh, yeah, we'll do that. Saying that you know deconstruction is the rigorous philosophical term for the work of Jacques Derrida, but also a little bit Barthes and uh, Foucault, whatever. 
uh, French all around, um, and has nothing whatsoever to do with Russian constructivism, constructivism, deconstruction, constructivism, obviously making up this buzzword, uh, deconstructivism. And he says, and, and he spends half the interview literally just saying like, stop saying that word, it's stupid. If you want to talk about what serious intellectuals like me and Bernard Shumi were doing, the ones who actually did the reading, unlike those other clowns. He doesn't, he doesn't, <laughs> he stops short. I mean, he says, that's right. Come on. Uh, uh, fuck. Cool house. Cool house also did the reading. Yeah. And he says, cool house is, is, well, not, not the Derrida, but he, he says like, cool house is the only one who's a legitimate heir to constructivism. Right. Which, I mean, we would maybe dispute. Those ter- and the they, and, they're, and, they're, and they're the, their understanding of legitimate. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Shumi uh, accepts the constructivism and the deconstructivism. Yeah, he's not that bothered by An, an easy uh, yeah. relationship as well. Yeah, yeah. I but mean, he's, I, he's I, not, I think he's I, not as aggressive as Eisenman in kind of like. No, he's not because, again, Eisenman wasn't at the AA. Like the whole constructivism <laughs> thing. The, the constructivist part of the deconstructivist architecture was specifically an right. AA, uh, the neo-political gang. Right. Shumi, Zengelis, Kulhas, yep. Ben Zaha. Ben Zaha. That's, that, that's the faction of the constructivism part. Right. The Americans never, never had nothing to do with construct. I mean, obviously, constructivism was just an excuse. They were doing the same thing. I, I agree. Yeah. Uh, I agree with Philip Johnson putting them all in the same box. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, be, them having explicit inspiration from constructivism or not is completely irrelevant. Mm-hmm. I guess a, 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 an important question is why now? Why this series of articles on on uh, deconstructivism now? Coop Hilmerblau was also at the... Uh, yeah, yeah no, one, no one cares about it. No one, about Wolf no one, Bricks? No, no one cares about Wolf, Wolf Bricks. Wolf, Wolf Bricks? Bricks. Or uh, Coup Pimmelbaugh? No. <laughs> yeah, but they were part of the... No, actually, they're the, the true, band. like, underground, the, the punk. Yes, the, the real the, punk. The real, the real true cult. Yes. Deconstructivism is <laughs> Coup Pimmelbaugh. All the cool kids, actually, the one they really like. The is, one they really like. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> the Wolf Prax. Yeah. Do you know why they would do this now? I have no idea what, why they're doing this deconstructivism series. No, the whole Philip Johnson, Mark Wigley exhibition at MoMA was 1988. Mark Wigley was how old? It's early 30s. He was inventing just his out of, academic... Just out of PhD. Series like, I'm going to become a... Why, why did Philip Johnson invent Mark Wigley? I'm not sure. For this. I mean... I'm not sure. I think Mark, Mark Wigley is kind of ideal for this. In in the Eisenman interview, he talks about how Mark Wigley should know better than lumping deconstruction and constructivism together, since Eisenman says he's smarter than that because I read his PhD thesis. I was one of his examiners, mm. so I think Wigley was probably probably just did his PhD on deconstruction or something like that, and he was teaching at Princeton. He went from from New Zealand direct into directing a graduate program at Princeton. 
the magic of the 80s. Magic of the 80s. <laughs> All your dreams come true. <laughs> so it's, it's not an anniversary or anything. No. This, this just feels like an example of like accelerating trend cycles. Like we're already, we're already back to deconstructivism now. Like it was, it was Memphis like a couple of years ago, Rossi a couple of years ago. Now we're up. We've already, we've gone through the seventies and, and early eighties. We're back to the late eighties, early nineties already. Mm-hmm. Um, in just this kind of like terminal recycling vortex that architecture and <laughs> culture in general seems to be in. I mean, yeah. If it was saving resources, I'd be fine with it. I think I've seen some interest in in academia for deconstruct for deconstruction or deconstructivism recently. I mean, this is still the official architecture of the regime. Yeah. Not under these terms, though. No. It's kind of like one last-ditch effort to prop up the regime with some of its older alibis. Yeah, I guess. Which is interesting because it itself was, again, the... Specifically, the uh, AA side of it was trying to reconstruct yeah. contemporary architecture using old alibis. Yeah, yeah. The entire, the entire rebelliousness of this is kind of grating. What do you mean? I mean, if, uh, uh, <clears throat> even the uh, contemporary apologists, like the the. the the introductory article by Owen Hopkins uh, that launches the series itself is kind of apologist, but has to do the kind of performative critical moment at the end, etc. And it's always the kind of generic. Um, well, but then it became the establishment and less cool, right? Thing, I think. right? And I mean, but the 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 idea of a rebellious moment, like what what the the rebellion here is against like institutional modernism and also I specifically uh shumi makes it explicit we were rebelling against two things postmodernism and yeah. neo-modernism right what is neo-modernism which is interesting because i had never heard the word neo-modernism in that way i mean i would say that it's like rogers piano maybe i don't know I think he doesn't uh, actually name he names specifically Venturi and Rossi yeah. as enemies, but he doesn't name neo modernists. I think Eisenman does. The thing is, for me, neo modernism is Eisenman. <laughs> like yeah. in my brain, this this is neo modernist postmodernism yeah. because our we have like a reading of postmodernism in kind of broader, yeah. in a broader sense. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, they had. I mean, Shumi, the 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 London branch of deconstructivist architecture, had an explicit early modernist avant-garde uh, inspiration. So it was neo-modernist in form, like neo-modernist in form, deconstructivist in content. Yeah, I mean, Eisenman with the New York Five, 
they were neo-modernists and they were postmodernists at the same time. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then Eisenman says that like he had to kind of break up with that crew to get into the, the new cool kid party that right. was the deconstructivism exhibition. Right. And like uh, Michael Graves was kind of like sad to be left out of the new party. <laughs> <laughs> <kind of> relegated <laughs> to the now uncool yeah. Historicist postmodernism. Right. Well, is there anything else interesting about this stuff? Uh, I mean, this it's an, another opportunity for us to launch into our general uh, characterization of postmodernism and neo neo avant garde in academia, the role of academia, the Bilbao effect, blah 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 blah. Yeah. Uh, I don't really feel like doing all that then right now though. Yeah, we all know the the general gist of the thing. I think Shumi Shumi has a little bit at the end where he kind of lets slip the, the how the, like the way of thinking of this trend. He said, he like said the, the quiet part loud, as they say. Sort of. Uh, let me find it. Yeah. So uh, at some point, Shumi is going about how. Before them, before their generation, uh, schools were following what was being built in the real world. And right. uh, after him, after this generation, the real world started following what was schools were coming up with. Right, right. It put academia at the forefront of yeah. uh, the vanguard. Yeah. Um, the vanguard of commercial architecture? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which is kind of interesting. But then... Like, it's interesting as, a, as precisely this kind of explicit formulation. Uh, and he even frames it in a, in a really funny way. He says, he, he's saying that Rafael Moneo said this. Right. That until that moment, schools of architecture were influenced by what was being built in the world. From, but from that day, it's what was being built by the big corporation that was influenced by what was being done in the schools of architecture. Now, I, I, this, is, um, this is Shumi's phrasing of Moneo. But it's interesting how there is no big corp corporation in the first sense. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Which is correct, because up till then, schools of architecture were influenced by public programs. Yeah. By the architecture of the welfare state. And after that, the architecture of neoliberalism was influenced by what's happening in schools of architecture. Yeah, what's happening in schools of architecture. Uh, but then after this, the interviewer, Tom Ravenscroft, uh, Ask, is it the same today? Will the next style or similar come out of the architecture schools rather than the practicing architects? And Shumi says, frankly, yeah, I would say yes, because there is a place where it's wonderful to think without a budget and without regulations and planning and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Like, it's wonderful to think without relationship to real issues. A lot and why would it be that without, without thinking about real issues, you're producing something valuable for big corporations? Yes. Why, should, why, why, why is that? Is that? And then it says a lot of things that are being done now have certain interests which were not at the forefront in the 80s. Climate change and things like that. Mm. <laughs> things like that. Some, some such stuff. Some such stuff. That's the reason why I'm reasonably optimistic. The issues today are fairly different, so there are more chances that interesting work is going to come out. So the way, the, the way this, this thought goes is real issues are sources of inspiration to solve the internal problem of architecture coming up with new stuff. Yeah. It's not like architecture is helping the world solve the issues. It's we can appropriate the issues to to make architecture more like more fun or whatever. Mm. 
Yeah, and wouldn't that, I mean, if he was being consistent, wouldn't that reflect a shift back to the previous situation where architecture is, is working off what's happening in the real world? No, it's a, essentially it's okay for architecture to appropriate issues in the outside of it that actually affect people and society in general mm -hmm. uh, for its own good. It's not okay for architecture to be aimed at satisfying higher ends than it than than itself. Than itself, right? And somehow, through some kind of disciplinary magic, what's good for architecture is good for real estate. Yes, and this is true. It's quite remarkable how they all of these, the specifically again the London branch, uh, who are very incredibly inspired by constructivism. And supposedly these ones who did the readings never actually did any of the readings. Like what, what he's saying is the exact opposite of what constructivism was saying. Well, he has no, in, no interest in constructivism, Eisenman. No, I'm, I'm talking about Shumi. Shumi. Well, Shumi explicitly says that the kind of politics that he's interested in and that should be the guide of the discipline now is, is not the old politics yeah. of structurally transforming society but a new yet to be determined politics that is about space or something and and we will be inventing it climate change and things like that but, is the new version but, of that but yeah but in his case it's the things like that part that's important the things like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah in the previous uh iteration in like the late 70s there were no crises except the disciplinary crisis right and politics was left basically as a kind of abstract figure for architecture to somehow yeah. reproduce itself yeah um with the idea that a new architecture would be the new politics so just inherently yeah, yeah. Eh. well i don't really care that much about continuing no one should really care about deconstructivism right now. No. Everyone should negatively care about it. But not too hard? No. <laughs> Enough to dismiss it and go move on. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to do... We're going to continue our Dazeen dumpster dive uh, to go a little deeper. We found a couple pieces of sh shiny garbage. Yeah, we, we've decided given that this is boring, um, <laughs> to just go and look for explicitly superficial garbage to talk about uh, with a return of our, what we, was supposed to be a segment that we then never did again. Well, we've just been, we've just been saving it up for, uh, for a surprise. Right. Architecture, good or bad? Bad or good. What was the jingle again? Buildings in your neighborhood. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> okay, do you want to do you want to start? Uh, How this works is just as a reminder is right. we each do some research on a wonderful new piece of architecture, uh, generally from from the uh, pages of Dzine. We share it with each other, uh, and then we decide whether it gets a, a good or bad rating. And it's almost always bad, but sometimes we find a way to make it, to say that it's good. 
I mean, the, the point is, is it bad enough to become good? Yeah. That's right. So I have a pretty boring thing that I kind of liked anyway, mm. which is uh, Miami's first super tall, super tall skyscraper. Okay. Which is just a kind of a relatively boring skyscraper. It's kind of like offset glass cubes. Yeah, so it's it's just a, uh, it's just a seagram, another seagram, but it's cubical, but it's segmented into bits that look like cubes that They're are slightly stacked up. stacked up, slightly project. I mean, this is a run of the mill structure. You would have a, an obvious like structural core, and mm -hmm. the slabs are extended and hanging from the core. That's a way of doing skyscrapers in general, yep. right? Uh, and you can just, like, extend slabs slightly differently. In one direction, then a bit in the other direction. Yeah, and if you do it in a certain way, you can just make it look like a cube stack on top of each other. Right. That's it. It's That's that's the originality of it. I just like it because it looks like Borg cubes. That's true. Um, the Borg should land in Miami. I do agree. That should be one of the first... Uh, this First is a stops. Waldorf Astoria hotel. Okay. Which counts, apparently it counts as super tall because yep. it's higher than 300 meters. 300 meters is when the official category of super tall of starts. Super. Super. super yeah. Tall. Over. Yeah. I guess that's starts. like the height at which super, Superman can't jump over. I don't know. I was thinking, what, why, what is the 300? Is it just an Eiffel Tower thing? Hmm. Legacy. Is a legacy height? Maybe. Maybe it's like the Chrysler building or something. Uh, wait, 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 what's the 300 meters? Eh. I don't know. I mean, I like the Superman jump. I, but Superman flies, though. Yeah, but in the original song or whatever, he can jump over a skyscraper. Mm. Isn't that how it goes? Really? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not he American. I don't know from the, superheroes. Superman is Canadian. Just like uh, Frank Gehry, by the way. Little known fact. <laughs> all the all the all the true knucks out there will remember the uh, Heritage Minute that explained explained how this is so. The Kents are not in Canada. No, they're in like well, that's I I don't know the name of the state, but it's clearly America. I just mean the the uh, cartoonist who invented Superman was Canadian. Why is it that Somehow. all all American nationalism is in invented some. by Canadians. Yeah, we've got a we've got a weird thing going on where we just like kind of create the most bizarre, often reactionary thinkers for the Anglosphere, especially specifically for U.S. Uh, hmm. Like the U.S. U.S. nationalist patriotic right wing. There's a lot of. It's all invented there. in Canada. <laughs> that might be true. <laughs> Ted Cruz is Canadian, right? Ted Cruz is Canadian? Is that the right one? Isn't he Cuban? I hope the Borg Cube lands on Ted Cruz. That would be amazing. <laughs> anyway, it's just a boring tower, but it looks like Borg Cubes, and I liked it because of that. Yeah, Ted Cruz is Canadian. You're, you, that, 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 Born that, in Calgary. There's no way. Yeah. He's, a, he's not even Cuban-American. He's Cuban-Canadian. That's even worse. Maybe he's not Cuban at all. <gasps> yeah, he's uh, 
He's Cuban. Cuban, Canadian, American. Anyway. Actually, his dad was uh, was uh, opposed the Batista regime. When? Ted Cruz is a dis- big disappointment. When? In the 50s. In the 50s? Okay. And then left Cuba in 57. Because the Batista regime was progressive when it started. Right. Like the Communist Party was in government with coalition, but Batista, and then there was a regearing hard right national bourgeois comprador pro-US thing. Anyway, enough about uh, Milwaukee Bucks shooting guard Grayson Allen. I did not understand a single <laughs> word of those sounds you've said. It's another deep cut for any basketball fans out there. Ted Cruz lookalike basketball player. Let's, why don't you show us your, one of oh, yours? Have we decided if it's good or bad? No, we have not. I think it's good if they proceed with the assimilation of all Miami fascists. They all become cubes? Each person a cube. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that tower will be pretty tall. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh... My first one, in keeping with our opening discussion, is the Frank Gehry Partners project for Prospect Place, mm-hmm. which is in um, Battersea. Yeah, so that just looks like generic garbage with a Gary facade treatment. Yeah. For anyone not familiar with Battersea, Battersea was a power station. It's on the cover of a Pink Floyd album. It's in uh, West London on the south side of the Thames. It's kind of an iconic uh, brick Art Deco power station right. thing. It's been out of use for a long time now, and but in the last few years, it's been redeveloped uh, into this massive new luxury housing complex mm-hmm. uh, with star architecture projects like this one from Frank Gehry. What's kind of interesting about this whole thing is that it's incredibly dense. All the buildings are like right up next to each other. They're all a bit curvy in plan. Yeah. And then the Frank Gehry one that we're looking at for Prospect Place, it's 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 got that kind of curtainy effect. That kind of the, the facade Gehry. waves back and forth. Facade waves back and forth. Every single piece of material needs to be custom designed using space age software because there's no like two angles are the same Mm -hmm. or whatever nonsense uh i think what makes this interesting there's an image that they're so close to each other that you're basically going to be kind of suspended on this wall of glass and white balconies and windows staring directly at a massive wall of the same shit Mm mm-hmm um, it looks really horrible. It does look terrible. I had a teacher in uni. Actually, I didn't. It wasn't my teacher. It was a teacher of some, several of my friends, a design teacher, um, who was a horrible reactionary. He studied in a seminar in Rome and then mm. decided he wanted to be an architect. Seminary? Seminary. He trained to be a priest and then decided architecture <laughs> instead. Um, and he used to say that, like, he had this kind of typical postmodern fetish with 
quote unquote human scale. Mm. And he said that the most wonderful street to live in would be one where if you run out of salt, you can just knock on your opposite the other on the other side of the street's neighbor's window. <laughs> like from across <laughs> the street. You would knock on the window and ask for the salt from and they just reach it across. The, and they reach it across the, the window, the, the, the street. The street. Yes. What an idiot. He was also a massive racist. We have a, a black friend uh, from Angola, and he uh, called him the darky in Portuguese. Wow. And that was kind of terrible. That's fucked up. Indeed. So that, that's, that's the kind of people who like narrow streets, everybody. how do you get how does light get into such a flat it doesn't i don't think he's you just have to reach across knock on your neighbor's window and ask them to like remove all obstacles remove all between you and the other side of their yes and they have to do the same with their neighbor and then eventually light trickles in it's called trickle in Lightonomics. <laughs> Trickle down neighborhood. Anyway, I think I mean what what this Gary building really reminds me of. I, a few years ago, I went to southern Spain uh, on a holiday, and we rented a flat in one of these, you know, one of the hundreds, if not thousands, of tourist estate like tourist developments on the southern coast of Spain. They're set back. There's usually some village nearby. There's the coast with beaches, and then there's a highway, and then there's all these tourist developments on the other side of the highway. And they're all aligned to sort of look out at the sea. They're all white. They've got a bit of a terrorist, terrorist effect. Terrorist. Terrorist effect. Step back. But the the goal of density makes them like they're just piled on top of each other, mm-hmm. and they kind of go end up going back in these open ended courtyards, so that you're peering down this canyon of hundreds of these replicated white uh, right. tourist flats, right. look trying to see the sea in the distance, mm-hmm. and this looks like basically a bad acid trip in one of these tourist right. Uh, enclaves. Right, right. Uh, it's like quite quite yeah. remarkable in London though it's noticeable. It's incredibly obvious. Like the rich people get the worst urbanism. Yeah, just based on when it was built. Yeah. They don't build housing for poor people anymore. Yeah. And all they build now is garbage. Yeah. So rich people get a lot of garbage. Yeah. That's true. But uh But yeah. they do get a grand piano inside their garbage. Right. As you can see from the floor plans. So this is just bad. Yeah, straight up bad. Just bad. So what's the next one? The other thing I've got, uh, which might give us a bit more to consider on the good end, is a project, uh, a conceptual timber high-rise by Haptic and Ramball, which they say is developed for any city in the world. Now, taking a look at this image, what you see is a high-rise building with some kind of modular wood laminated structure. 
it's infilled with kind of higgledy-piggledy stuff, <laughs> like little cottages and cabbages. And there's some like Seagram building floors that are offices, looks like. And then there's some, you know, contemporary condo looking things. Then it's, yeah, like piled up boathouses and little cottages. <laughs> then there's a truss. What do you make of this? Before I tell you more about its true genius. I mean, building the structure out of timber, fine. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just a perfectly standard floor plan as it should. Then you can fill it up with whatever trendy garbage you want. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically it. Ramble is, a, is an engineering firm. So I assume they developed some sort of composite. It's like a composite uh, steel and timber Mm-hmm. cross-laminated timber structural system. Mm-hmm. Uh, the modular idea is to have um, kind of double height or like tri- even triple height uh, uh, vertical span. So you've got like, you've got space. You can either have two kind of commercial height or office height floors within right. the module or, or three, three residential yeah. floors. And then you, you like it. It's a it's a free plan and a free facade. It's just a it's yeah. just it's just corbetalgier. Cor- uh, fill it up yeah. with diversity things. Exactly, it's the Opus plan meets just a, a skyscraper. Yeah. yeah, made of timber. Made of timber. Fine, I'm fine. Cool. Yeah, is what, it reproducible at a large what, scale? What I find kind of funny about this though is that they say it's for any any place in the world, and they make like a big case for the conceptual it's just because their idea is it's a skyscraper right i mean it's like they've invented the skyscraper <laughs> from, from the way they talk uh i mean i'm guessing that the whole uh, anywhere in the world bar- part is also going to be like they invented the free plan and the free facade like you can build it in like contextual by filling it up filling the mm. floors with uh, whatever is Whatever is whatever is, fits, whatever kind of tiles are, are yes. critically regional in, yeah, in that area. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, I, I don't think they did, they made any kind of aesthetic case for its adaptability. Well, they missed they missed a they missed a the trick there. They yeah. missed a trick of their own with their own design. Then, yeah, it really just seems that yeah they're making the case based on programmatic flexibility, yep. which when the skyscraper was developed was quite a quite a quite a big deal. Yeah, a hundred years ago. <laughs> Yeah, otherwise, again, it's the Obis plan. And Manfredo Tafuri was right when he said all the Obis plan was like the last word in all these kinds of projects. Yeah. And everything else is some sort of from yeah. metabolism to yeah. new brutalism to, to this is all just the Obis plan in various new yeah. uh, guises. Still, I, I think this gets a this gets a good rating. Mm-hmm. There's I think at least concept theoretically. Making a uh, uh, heavy uh, building structure more sustainable is good. Yeah. This technology is hardly unique to this project, but it's fine or whatever. Keep go, keep keep doing it. Yeah. Modularity is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. All right. Good architecture. Now I'm going to... I ha- also have a second one. This is the coolest one. Okay. Pun intended. <laughs> Arnhildur Palmadottir proposes building cities out of lava. 
(laughs) (laughs) That sounds diabolical. Isn't it great? Icelandic, of course. Yeah. Icelandic architect person has revealed her radical and gigantic lava forming lava lava forming proposal at this year's Design March Festival in Reykjavik. Lava forming would see controlled lava eruptions being used to create buildings, which according to the designer will be substantially more sustainable than those built out of steel and concrete. What? Let's build let's make a let's turn in instead of building a building, we do a micro volcano. Yeah. Thousands of tons of ash. Yeah. Millions of tons of ash. Yes. That's more sustainable. Lava, do you not understand, Bill? Okay. Lava is the building material of the earth. Mm. That's that's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Facts. Yeah. But instead of letting landscapes form naturally over millions of years, we can take over earth's building processes and produce a whole city for humans in a few weeks. In a few oh, weeks. What could go wrong? What could go wrong with <laughs> this is this is a pseudo bullshit architecture like just meets Bond villainism. Yeah. Extreme. Yeah. yeah. It it means that we have a sustainable source of building materials. It's called stone. Stone, <laughs> yeah. That can itself also produce the energy needed to handle and process it. See? Okay. How does this work? I don't know. Should I ask? <laughs> but I don't care. I think it's cool. Let's make a building out of it. Let's make an artificial vol- micro volcano that becomes a building. How do you get that started? You need like an artificial meteorite to crash into the surface of the earth? <laughs> you launch the satellite with a rail gun. And then okay, you well. shoot Iceland with it. <laughs> Apparently there's three ways this could work. Okay. Three. First, lava can be directed into chambers to cool it into required forms that could be used as a traditional building material. So you've got like a, a brick. Invented lava stro- brick. stone masonry. Yeah. That's called that's called stone masonry. But the earth pours the lava into your molds rather yes. than having to carve it. Yes. Yeah. I don't get why freshly made stone is better than old stone. No. What kind of lo- what kind of igneous rock is this? Like pumice. Can you build with pumice? I don't know. I'm sure. Second, it can be directed in a molten state to be 3D printed. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, like we- electronics love molten. It's the next step. Three L- rock. Three D printing <laughs> is already like the general uh, generalized technology to do everything. Yeah. Now we just need to do it the next step, which is make it. Make it lava. make it resistant. <laughs> make it out of lava. Make it resistant to a, a ten billion degrees. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, it can be directed into parallel trenches where it would cool in situ and be used as a structural basis for a city. I don't know what that means. Like roads. Like you, you have to carve trenches, and then you. I don't know, but this drawing is weird and cool. Yeah, that's awesome. that's straight up awesome isn't it yeah there's a it's it's just all the drawings are like black and then they have some like lava texture doing kind of neo-avant-garde straight lines yeah not sure 
Obviously, I have no like idea what that leading represents. it towards build, uh, building. I don't know. Like you, you should, you should, like, you should Google the Zine Lava Buildings and see and then watch. Those these look pictures. like uh, like tracks. Like those are right. Like uh, tanks with a tilted platform with lava up against it. That's what it looks like. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, wow. And then, of course, it's actually a critical project. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. It's to demonstrate that construction requires radical change to become more sustainable. Right. Like the apocalypse? Yes. Nothing says sustainability like lava. <laughs> lava forming is the architecture of a technologically advanced society that has advanced profit maximization, that has abandoned profit maximization. Ooh, ooh, okay. And is therefore, so uh, this, is, this is only possible in communism. Okay. And is therefore free to explore solutions to the building material crisis of the world. We work and live in systems that are fixed and pretty... This is all the author. Uh, fixed and predetermined, we have supply chains that run smoothly and have been fine-tuned so we can get products, buildings, and food in a simple and fast way. Changing, changing this is not easy, and this is what is preventing us from taking real steps to reduce carbon emissions and the effects of climate change. But it also makes you think, what would happen if we think outside of those systems and if we look at things from a different angle? While the author believes that the proposal could be realized, she acknowledges that it is unlikely to become a reality. She hopes, instead, it will demonstrate the scale of the issue facing the architecture and construction industry. In one way, she says, the project is a naive attempt at proposing a new way of building, and we want to push this idea as far as we can because we believe this will happen, she said. On the <laughs> other hand, on the other hand, we know this is bullshit. And we want to convey <laughs> the hopelessness of modern architecture and the future. Mm, mm. Yeah, they, you got to play it both ways, right? Yeah, yeah. This is what this is what they teach you in architecture school. Yes, exactly. This this looks like a good student project. Yeah, yeah. Good as in like it wins the prize, and everyone has fun talking about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And, I and mean, your friends think it's cool. I I, yeah. I have fun talking about it. Yeah, for sure. No, it's it's legit. This is legit, it's legit good. cool. Isn't it? It's bullshit, but it's it's good. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. So yeah, this wins. So if this radical I'm reading a quote. Yeah. So if this radical and gigantic undertaking is the only avenue for a sustainable building method, imagine how fucked we are. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem though. This is the you know the whole Zizek, easier to imagine the end of the world, mm -hmm. or the whole uh, capitalist realism thing. Mm -hmm. Like, like we're we're fucked in this in this political economy, uh, this mode of production. We're fucked in capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, so, I don't know. I don't like the so apocalyptic pessimism of the volca The volcanoes are the only thing will save us. If your premise is already we're past capitalism. Then you can be you don't you don't need to be pessimistic and have this nonsense. Yeah. Does that make sense? I think the argument yeah, the argument here is this is the only solution, volcanoes. If this is a satire basically of of grandiose pseudo sustainable projects, then it's genius. Yes. But I think it's as you've just said, it's the having it both ways. Yeah, it's having thing. it both ways. Yeah. It's the like this is an actual realistic proposal. This is possible, but it's only possible in communism. 
And because we're not in communism, communism then it's a satire of it not being possible in capitalism. Mm. Well, I like that rendering with the lava texture. <laughs> the people have the right to lava columns. Lava tanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, that's it for this episode, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, I think this was the most... Laid back. Laid back. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, th this this time we did get one pretty nifty and deep question on by a patron. patron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we are uh, we did not address it this n now because uh, we were, now we didn't have, we don't have space for it yeah. in this one, and it's a pretty it like warrants a pretty detailed yeah uh, discussion, yeah yeah and right? it, it 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 connects to pretty serious issues that we keep addressing on like on like what is the relationship between architecture and basically the welfare state and what is the welfare state yeah is exactly. it progressive is it uh yeah. did it block revolution did it make progressive gains how do you understand how do it? you work through this stuff yeah. especially in relation to our one of our pet peeves which is a critique of like radical architecture as a kind of a neoliberal critique uh, of the welfare state framed as a left critique of the welfare state and the ambiguity political mm -hmm. ambiguous space there so there's a lot to talk about yeah uh so for sure in the next episode we will be talking about this um but yeah like in the meantime uh Join the Patreon so you can ask us more questions. <laughs> yeah. If we get another one, maybe we can do that next for next episode also. Yeah, indeed. Although we've got some other ideas, but whatever. Get in line quick. <laughs> <laughs> did, uh, you, did you say the patreon.com slash street sweeper pod? Indeed. You, you say you're getting smoother. Uh, you, you, and smoother. You should always, yeah, you need to be the one to say that always. Smoother. You're getting smoother and sleazier. <laughs> Yeah, on, a, exactly. on, a, on a monthly basis. It's exactly. Good. More professional. <laughs> All right. See you next time. All right. See you next time. Bye.